Don't get it. But just like I help Bob and the crew out with their song, I'm going to help you. Next song needs to be God Made a Way. God Made a Way. Who sings bass in your group? You could do that, couldn't you? I don't think so. You don't think so? I'll sing bass for you. Wait, you got a low voice. Why couldn't you do it? I'll try it. I'll audition you for the spot. How'd that be? <laughs> now today, uh, we're going to get into our next couple of verses found in Proverbs chapter 22. And I'm excited about chapter 22 for a, a number of reasons. I, I think it's a, really a great practical chapter. But you're going to remember that I told you last week, uh, in a couple of weeks, probably not next week, but probably the week after, uh, we're going we're gonna to slam into the single most important verse in the Bible uh, to see and understand how to train up your children. And, and I told you last week that, you know, we have a lot of new parents. Babies are being born everywhere, every day here. And uh, when we started our church, you know, most of the teenagers now, my goodness, my grand, my, you know, my, my one granddaughter is driving. She drives me nuts. She drives the parents nuts. No, she, she's as good as girl as there are is that uh, you just turned 13, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> You're 15? Yeah, you can't drive when you're 13. Yeah, you're, you're 15. I, but, and, and, you know, and, uh, you know, Steve's kids and Bubba's kids, and they're all growing up, man. And not only do we have a lot of parents that are having kids that need to understand this, but for our kids that are entering into that time period, um, we, uh, we need to understand that our kids that are in their teens are moving into the most challenging time of their life. And we really need to try to help them every way that we can. I know I, it's on my heart all the time. I, I appreciate all that they do here at the church and for all that Zach and Jenny do and all the counselors and, and everybody who just really helps and just selfishly gives of their time to make... Uh, it all happened for them, and, and, but it was something that we need to be diligent about. And uh, even in our verse today, <coughs> uh, we're going to begin to see uh, some uh, um, really good principles that will help you as parents. Uh, and we're not even into the verse yet. <coughs> but today, let's look at Proverbs chapter 22, and we're going to read verse 2 and 3, and then come from here. It says, The rich and poor uh, meet together. The Lord is the maker uh, of them all. A prudent man uh, foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are, are, are punished. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Alex, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Thank you, Alex. Now, verse 2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. You know, when you read that verse, you probably would ask yourself, how in the world are you going to get an hour sermon out of that? And, of course, uh, every Monday when I start uh, putting it together for the week, I, I read Proverbs, I read the thing, the next thing, thir Sunday night, 
and just look at it. And uh, I've always asked myself, man, I don't know, what am I going to get out of that? But then when you get into it and you start following the procedure of unlocking the Scriptures, well, well, you'll see today as we get through it. Because there's a lot here to see. But as always, uh, you know, the first thing we want to do is we want to set the context. Uh, We do that in everything that we do here, a context of Proverbs chapter 22. Context, as I said Thursday night, will always be based on the definitive passages or verses in the Bible. You have to establish a context. Every heresy in the world today, Christian and non-Christian, and there's heresies in both, start with somebody not establishing a context and getting an understanding of what it's saying. Now, as you find it here, uh, this again will be dealing with the nation of Israel among all the other nations of God dealing with them. Uh, the verse will go along with uh, last week. In verse 1, we talked about the uh, Israel getting a good name at the second coming of Christ. Right now, she's got a bad name. The Bible makes it very clear, and you can find it many places in the, in the Bible, but I guess uh, the definitive passage on it would be Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 10, which is commonly being called the Sermon on the Mount. He preaches that on the mountain there, and that's why it's called that. But you'll find it right there in that passage, in those five chapters, how that Israel, from the world standpoint, and we know that the world makes false witness against them, the world attacks them, and the Bible makes it clear in that passage that Israel, from a world standpoint, is very poor. You're going to find where it talks about poor in spirit. You're going to find uh, it talks about how that they mourn. You're going to talk about how that they're meek and they're, they're hungry, they're persecuted, they're reviled by, by, by men. And, uh, you know, it's all a manner of evil comes, comes their way. And she is listed that way as you see how that in the time that we live in right now, that uh, she is very poor as far as the world. She's the last on anybody's scale. I mean, you got Russia, you got the Middle East nations, you got, um, you know, you got Europe, the European nations, you got America, you got England. We know from Luke chapter 21 that, that this is called the times of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles rule. So because the devil uses those nations, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, he paints Israel and persecutes Israel from the world standard that the whole world is all against her and are portrayed, uh, they are portrayed as very rich and she's portrayed as, as very poor. But the verse is saying that God has made both of them for his purpose. And when you go through the Bible, you'll find that God has a purpose for the nation of Israel. You'll find that God has a purpose for the Gentile nations and the times of the Gentiles. And there's a time coming when they'll all meet together and God will straighten it all out and put everything in its right priorities. You know, in the Bible... Next year in Bible Institute, uh, maybe this year, I don't know, we'll see, but the next thing we're going to start going through is the seven series in the Bible. We have went through the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We established a baseline. Right now we're giving the Bible, breaking it down into those components so you can get it all together. Once we accomplish that, then we're going to go back in and we're going to start to really, really, really uh, put the icing on the cake, so to speak. I'm going to show you God's systematic theology. Within that systematic theology, which is a number of sevens, everything's broken down that way, you're going to find that there's seven judgments in the Bible. And those seven judgments are found throughout the Word of God, and, and one of them will be uh, God dealing with the nation of Israel and bringing them to the end of their sinful self uh, in their tri- tribulation period. When, that's where He judges them. You'll find that in Psalms chapter 48, verse 11, and Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 16, and I think Ezekiel 5, probably down through there, 
6 through 15 somewhere. It talks about God judging them, and that's their judgment. But then within that seven judgment, there is another one which is called the judgment of the nations. And this will be found in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32. That'll be the definitive on it. And you're going to find that when the Lord comes back, He judges the nation of Israel in the tribulation period to get them to the end of self. And then, at the second coming of Christ, when He establishes in the, in the millennial reign of Christ, now He judges the nations. And Proverbs here today is talking about how that they both come before the Lord, the rich and the poor. The poor being the nation of Israel, the rich being the Gentile nations that think that they have it all and are all powerful and all of that. And of course, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, he brings them together. It's commonly called sometimes the dividing of the sheep and the goats when, when you read it. You see, it doesn't matter how the world views things. It really doesn't. I've, had, I, I've, I've talked about and taught all my ministry how that English, English language is the universal language of today. And uh, I've had people argue with me about that all down through there. Uh, you know, there are people who, who uh, don't necessarily believe that English language is a universal language. And, uh, you know, they'll give you all kinds of statistics and this and that and that. And I've learned through the years in the Bible, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It only matters what God thinks. And when God portrays the English language as a universal language, it doesn't matter what statistics you have. Your Bible was only written in three languages, and they were all three universal languages. Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek at the beginning of the New Testament, and today in English as a universal language in the last days before the second coming of Christ. And of course, if you know anything about Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and 9, you would probably have a better understanding of that. But it doesn't matter how the world views Israel. It doesn't matter how that America thinks that she's so powerful. It doesn't matter how Russia and Putin think that they're so powerful. They want to get back to the glory days, you know, and Russia under Stalin and all those things. None of that really matters. All that really matters is that God made them both for His honor and glory, and God is going to use them for His honor and glory. And how the world views themselves, many times we get caught up in that. We actually think that the world's view of something is important to us. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. If the world thinks it great, God probably thinks it stinks. And I've learned through my time in the Bible and my life walking with God that what, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter how they look at Israel. It doesn't matter how they look at Christianity. It doesn't matter even what God's people think about the Word of God in the King James Bible. It only matters what God thinks about it. And so many times we get caught up in and the world, Christian world, and the world of what their viewpoint is, and we lose the most essential viewpoint in anything in our lives, which will be God's viewpoint on it. And this is what I try to get you to see and understand here. And the nation will be brought together, and God will establish the system of priority and the new world order, which is the new covenant that He makes with Israel in Hebrews chapter 9, and, and God is going to bring it all together. Now that's as you find it in the Bible. That's what he's talking about there in the context of everything we're looking at. Now, let's look at it from a practical side here for a moment. Let's kind of get it all together here. And from a practical standpoint, you will find some really good guidelines and principles on how uh, you view and how you deal with people. And, um, you know, most pastors and churches, they'll make a real division between the rich people and the poor people. It's just the way that it's always been. I've been in the ministry almost 50 years. And I'm telling you, I have seen it all my life. 
and you're going to find that uh, growing down through, uh, going down through uh, churches in the 20th century, the big churches anyhow, and the little churches too, and you're going to find that pastors are forever famous for catering to the rich people uh, that will show up a- a- at your church. And to me, it's always been a joke. In my day, way back 20, 30 years ago, when I wasn't pastoring, but I was working in, in, in churches, and, uh, you know, the, the pastor's dream was to get a, a rich family, uh, someone with status. He actually thought that, that getting a judge in your church made your church a better church. I remember one time we got a judge uh, that uh, came into the church and joined the church way back in the day. I mean, all the guys were just ecstatic. Oh, he joined the church. He was worthless. He may have been good in the courtroom, but he was terrible as a Christian doing anything with the Lord. Sometimes you get some brain surgeon. Now, every Baptist church needs a brain surgeon, I tell you right now. But, uh, but they, you get a, some famous doctor, you know. Somebody that was really some heart specialist or this or that. And it was like the status of the church just went up because so-and-so is now a member of our church. I remember one time years ago that, uh, that the mayor uh, of Raytown uh, was, was looking at a church that, that I was associated with back then. And, oh, if we could adjust. I remember the staff meeting. If we could just land, you guys do everything you can to be nice to that family, to have the mayor of Raytown in our church would be unprecedented. He was an idiot too. <laughs> and he never joined the church. <clears throat> you know what? They're looking for a really good deal. And you've got to find yourself catering to them, making sure that they're, they're happy. You know, uh, you know uh, businessmen, big time. Remember, we had big time businessmen. I mean, guys that, that, that were worthless, but they had big businesses, they had a lot of money. And of course, it's they immediately become the elite status of the church. Rob, I see you're here. I'm certainly not talking about doctors. I'm not talking about you. You're a good doctor, and I appreciate you being here. <laughs> I have to clarify some things. I... He loves the Lord and loves the book. He's a good guy. And the truth of the matter is, and I'm embarrassed to say this. I, I really am. But it's true. Most churches are all about money. It, it just is. I, I am so conscious of it and feel the weight of it so much that this is why I, before we take the offering, I explain to you. If you're not a member of this church, we, we, we don't ask you to put anything in. I mean, most pastors, they would, they would die. I remember when we used to have these Christmas cantatis. <laughs> cantatas, Christmas c- thing. And we would, we would give away tickets and we'd pack the place out. And the pastor would just, they'd always have a goal or a theme, and the pastor would just be slobbering with the fact that here is 3,000 people here. We're going to take up a love offering at the end. And you got $28.39, you know. But that's the way they think. That's the way they think. And most churches, are unfortunately, are that way. Last week, verse 1, we talked about a good name. I'll be honest with you. When the world looks at churches today, Baptist churches, but any church really, they have terrible reputation. They don't have a good name. And that's because the goal that they have is so apparent that all they want is money. And they make a distinction between the rich and the poor. And when you fall into that trap, and when you get into a multi-million, uh, billion, uh, million dollar building you got to build, 
I mean, 30 million, 60 million, 70. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, a, a, couple, a, a couple of years ago, there was a church here in Kansas City, still here, a church here in Kansas City, and they had a great building. I mean, it was a absolutely, most pastors would die for that building. I wouldn't. I love this place. But, I mean, the building they had was absolutely incredible. And the pastor decided that they needed to build another big building, better than this one. And, I, and, I, and I, a guy told me that uh, in the staff meeting that they had about it, the pastor's reasoning was this. We have a bigger building. We'll get more people, and we get more people, we'll bring in more money. That was the goal. That was the goal. It's like that, I never saw the movie, that Field of Dreams movie, that if you build it, and they'll come, you know. That's not how you build a church. I learned that the hard way. I lost, about 30 years ago, I lost my favorite dog. He ran away. And I, I couldn't find him. And I got the idea that if I hired a contractor and built the most elaborate dog house that the world has ever seen, <laughs> that that dog would come back because of that dog house. And so I hired a contract. cost me $1,100. Is that a lot of money for a doghouse, Bubba? I know you live in it most of the time. Is that, yeah, yeah. I did good on that one, didn't I? I built this elaborate doghouse. Put it right in the, the eye with a, with a sign on it for my dog to come home. First day, nothing. Second day, nothing. He, he didn't come back at all. But I found my dog. You know how I found him? I, I, I scrapped the dog thing idea, went up and down the streets in the backyard, calling for my dog, looking for him. Amen. Where are you? I'm here. I love you. Get back home. Where are you at? I looked under the bushes. I looked under the porches. I looked everywhere. And I finally found him. Nobody is going to come that's worth any money, worth any salt, to come to a big grand. You got to go find them. Got to bring them in. But that's so foreign today. You know, that's so foreign today. And, and, I, and this guy, they built this church, and the church was like, I don't know, I, I forget, it was like $30 million. That's a lot of money. And I was at a wedding, and one of the deacons who I had known for quite a while came up to me, and he says, have you heard about our building program? And I said, yeah, I, I have, I heard about it. That's all I said. I didn't say, I think it's stupid. I didn't say, you know, I just said, yeah, I heard about it. That's, yeah, yeah great. He says, yeah, you ain't going to believe. He says, last Sunday, we took up a special offering to build that building. And we put it out to the people. And in our church service, in our church service, well, it, it's, we raised $500,000 in one offering. Praise God, he said. He was excited about it. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Five hundred, half a million dollars in one offering. Isn't that great? And I said, wow, that's great. And I said, now the only thing you got to do is do that 60 more times. <laughs> you know, in life, and this is free today, but you can have this. Life is about two concepts. It's about long-term and short-term. Many times we, 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 we only look at the short term. 
And, and, this is, and most Christians never even look at the short term. But you're going to find out that, you know, putting that kind of burden on your people, they didn't care. Pay up. You're not a family in that church. You're just a unit, giving unit that's on somebody's financial chart in somebody's office. Many times we sacrifice the long term on the altar of the immediate. So you have to cater to them. You have to, you know, you have to, you have to just make them feel special. You have to make them deacons. Oh, I've seen it. You put them some position of importance. You put them on the finance committee. So when you have issues of money, you can just kind of have them see because they got a lot of money at what you need. Got to take them out to dinner. I mean, you'll never get an appointment with that pastor, but if you got a lot of money, just make the call. You're in. I've seen it. I've seen it. Come on in. Sit down. What's that jingling in your pockets? <laughs> no, that's the way it worked today. I've seen it all my ministry. And you know, uh, when you're in that kind of a situation and you're preaching, it affects everything you do. So you can't preach hard anymore. You can't preach the truth anymore because you might offend them. And in the back of your mind, you're weighing everything that you say because you got what? 40 guys out there, 40 families that are rich, and you got to cater to them, and you may know that they're not doing exactly right in some areas, but you're going to make sure you stay out of those areas. I know how it works. You get obligated to them. And there will be times in your own preaching, you hold yourself hostage because you, you can't. You, I want to tell you something. There's only one thing I'm obligated to, and that is the truth of the Word of God. I don't care about the rest of it. Somebody came to me a while back, or not here, but years ago, and said, well, you know what? I'm leaving the church and taking my tithe with me. Well, we've got two doors back here. Help yourself. You never get yourself in that position. Hey, if God is in this, and this is God's work, then God pays for what He orders. Don't ever think that one person in any church, one family, is the backbone that's going to hold it all together financially. But they do. And the reason why they do because they sold their soul to the building. Now you have to baby them. You have to cater to them. You have to make sure that they feel uh, special. And they'll never figure it out that the judgment seat of Christ and the rich and the poor are going to come together. And they're going to stand together before God. You know, in Luke chapter 16, you got the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the rich man fared sumptuously every day. He had all kinds of great things. Lazarus laid at his gate full of sores. But you know what? There came a time when both of those came before the Lord together, and God, God determined who was rich and who was poor. The world looked at the rich man. Wow! He looked at Lazarus and said, ugh. But when God brought them together, His money didn't help him. You know, rich people are hilarious. They always brag about how much they got and how much they have and how much they make. And in most cases, and I know this is not true 100% across the board, but in most cases it will be if you spend any time in the ministry. You're going to find that, you know what, they just tip God. Good job, Lord. 
Like a guy said one time, and he was joking, but he was serious. The pastor asked him. He had all kinds of money. He just won some. And the pastor said, uh, uh, are you going to tithe off of that? He says, here's what I'm going to do, pastor. I'm going to get it all out of my hands. I'm going to throw it up in the air. What falls down is mine. What God stays up is his. That's how, and he was kidding, but he was serious. But you know what? God's got their number. I had a guy one time that, that years ago, in a staff meeting, it was announced to us that so-and-so that was worth, I don't know how much it was worth, a lot of money, that he had just left all of his money to the church when he died. And everybody was ecstatic. Everybody was talking about what a good guy he was, how, how noble that was. And I want to tell you something. I didn't say anything then because I was a nobody. I'm a nobody now, but I mean, at least I, I'm the only buddy. God's got a wrench that'll fit in a nut in this world. Do you know that? I mean, that sounds so noble. That sounds so wonderful. Yeah, I get it. Keep it all for yourself right now, and then when you're dead and you can't use it anymore, then give it to the Lord's work. That's the reasoning. And how spiritual that is. When you can't use it anymore, then give it to God. Now, let me give you a lesson in sixth grade reading. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. This is how God fixes people like that. Now, I didn't, I knew this verse back then. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything because, you know, I, I, everybody was so happy, I didn't want to ruin their day. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that, and these are the little things in the Bible that you find. These are the little nuggets that when you search the Scriptures and you believe the book, then God just gives you these things. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You don't get any credit for what you leave behind. God understands the mindset. You only get credit for what you did while you were in this body. Read it! Now, if I'd have brought that verse up in that staff meeting years ago, I'd have been out of a job so fast I wouldn't know what hit it. You see that? You don't get anything for leaving it behind after you're dead. Can't use it anymore. So I'll just leave it all to God, have it all now, do what I want to do, and then when I'm dead, I'll give it to Him. It says, according to what you did with what you had while you were in your body. Now, and I'm not saying this is 100% true. And I know, I've known exceptions to it. I have. But most rich people who, who come into the ministry are worthless. And I know there's exceptions to that. Please don't take that across the board. Uh, but I'm telling you something. Uh, they just have too many possessions. They have too many toys. They have too many things that keep them busy, and they can never identify with the people who have less than they have. When a pastor starts living in a four or $500,000 home, when he starts to drive, drive cars that cost uh, much more than the people that he has uh, in his church, and he starts, you, you cannot help. When you start living on a level where your people don't live, you cannot help losing touch with them. You just can't. Yet the great joke is in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 2. People who are rich are really spiritual poor. And the people in, in most cases, and the people who are poor, in many cases, are really spiritually rich. Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man was the beggar. He just didn't know it. See, in this life, he didn't need to beg for anything. But in the afterlife, when he's in Abraham's bosom in hell, he had to beg for water. 
See, he was the real beggar. He just didn't know it. He was financially, physically rich, but he was superiorly a beggar. Now, when the God got them two together, we saw how it worked out. Lazarus, he's on the other side having a great time in his life in Abraham's bosom. Now, let's look at the next verse. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Now, this is a great verse, and I'm telling you, this is a great verse that we need to talk about some things in here and see several things. First of all, the Bible says this guy is prudent. What does that mean? That means he has discernment. That means he has and operates with discretion. Prudence means you're cautiously wise. Prudence means that you're careful of the consequences of whatever you're doing. Prudence means you're careful not to act too quickly when the end of a situation has a doubtful outcome or not unsure. It talks about in the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, to walk circumspectly. That means be careful. Walk carefully. Be wise in what you do. The second thing that it says about him that we want to look at is it says that he foresees the evil. Now, it didn't say, and you got to see this. Here again, you got to pay attention to the word. It didn't say he, uh, perce- he foresees all the evil things, all the evil ways. No, no, it says that he foresees the evil. That's a personification. That is, the devil at work, Job chapter 40 through 41, Revelation 12 and 13, he sees evil in its personified form and he understands where it comes from. The evil understanding completely what he's up against with the world, the flesh, and the devil as to the, uh, the issues of life that are going to come his way. He knows now that when I struggle with the evil, here's the source of it. You know, you'll never fix a problem in your life till you define where the source of it comes from. I have people that have all kinds of problems, have for years and years and years, and they'll come into me, and, they'll, and some of them are, you know, some of them are minute problems, they're no big deal. Some of them are strongholds. Some of them are very, very powerful in their lives. And I tell them, I say, you know, you've got an issue in your life. You've got an issue in your life. You, you, you have to do three things to really fix it. First of all, you've got to identify it. You've really got to stop and understand what your problem really is. You know, that sounds really simple, but you know we don't want to admit what our problems are. Now, that's hard for me to identify because I don't have any. That's my point. See? See how that just rolled off the tip of my tongue? We don't want to admit we got problems. And I want to tell you something. We all got problems. They may be on different levels, but they're all, we got problems. And there'll never be a time in your life where you don't have problems. The key is, do you want to fix your problem? And when you do, it starts by identifying. And we don't like to do that. I'll tell you the second thing we don't like to do. You have to isolate your problem. In other words, I've identified it. Now I'm going to lift this problem out. I'm going to put it over here from everything else. We are famous. Once we identify we have a problem, we are famous that we go to work on all the things we don't need to work on and ignore the one thing we need to work on. It makes us feel like we're doing something when we ain't doing anything. If I'm a serial killer and I'm going to work on my prayer life, that's not what I need. (laughs) Once you identify it, once you isolate it, then you know what you got to do? You got to eradicate it. You got to destroy it. 
You've got to take it to the place where you annihilate it. You've got to focus on it, and you've got to do whatever you've got to do. How long it takes, how intense it has to be. But you'll never get there for you first identify it, then you isolate it, then you've got to annihilate it. And this is one of the greatest verses. It really is. You know, the Bible is many things to us. It really is. It really is. And it's a great, great book. And this is one of the great verses in the Bible that show you what learning and cataloging biblical principles will really do for you. And I know, I harp on that all the time. I'm constantly on your back about building a library of biblical principles that you can fall back on, that whatever issue in life, you don't have to wonder about what God says, that you automatically have it right there. It allows you to see what's coming your way long before it gets to you. Now listen to me. Every situation, every circumstance you allow into your life or I allow into my life will have a, and I said this before, it'll have a short-term effect and it will have a long-term effect. When you are prudent, when you're cautiously wise, when you have understanding and discernment and discretion, you will look at both the long-term effect and the short-term effect. You'll never do something in the short term without stopping and considering how it's going to pay off a year from now two years from now, five years from now. And as I said, most of God's people at best only see the short term of how and what they want to do, and in most of the time, they don't even see that. And I'll tell you, the worst two areas that I see all the time, the worst two areas of that long term and short term will be in marriage and having children. I mean, I hear it all the time when, you know, you get married, you want to get married, you feel like you need to get married. My, I'm 22 and I'm not married. I'm ready for John Max Village and the old widow's place over there. And you ne- So you find somebody that comes along, you don't prove all things, and you, you sacrifice the long term on the order of the immediate. That's why there's divorces. Somebody asked me one time, what do you think the main reason for divorce is in America? I said, that's easy, marriage. And marriage in the aspect that people never look at the long term. Oh, you're beautiful right now, but how are you going to look 40 years from now? Oh, you're a handsome dreamboat. But wait till your sick pack turned into a keg. Sometimes I just crack myself up. <laughs> and then, oh, after you're married, we want to have kids. Oh, we're going to wait a while, a couple years. Then we're going to have kids. And you know what? We never, we, we look only at the short term of that. We never look at the long term. I've had, and the reason why parents lose their kids it's because all they ever looked at is the short term. I've had, I've had, I've had 
mom, dad say to me, I, you know, when I was talking about their kid, you know what, I, you know, I, and I try to tell them that what their kids need from them, and I need to this, and they said, you know what, I get that, but I work all day, and when I come home, I just want to veg out, I just want to relax, I don't want to have to do this with the kid, I don't want to do that, then you should have got a puppy. Because when you have kids, there's a short term, but there's a long term. Your responsibility doesn't end when they, when they get out of diapers and they can walk and talk on their own. That's where it begins. You see, you didn't look at the long term. You didn't realize that when you have children, your life changes. And maybe at first it doesn't change because your wife's the one that gets up in the middle of the night. And she don't, you don't have to change the diapers. And she does all that for you. I get it. And most guys, I, I'm always appreciative of guys that, that get up in the middle of the night and, and change the diapers. For, I, I think that's wonderful. I, I didn't ever do it. I, I was not, I just, I, I'm sorry I didn't. You know, I, I didn't. I, I would, didn't know anything about it. When, I, when, when the diapers on there said 25 pounds are up, I thought that's how much it held. You'll figure that out later. I appreciate it. But you know, your life changes. And the, the older they get, I'm going to tell you something. The more your life changes. And people get into marriage, they get to having kids. They look at the short term. Everybody loves the baby. Everybody loves the little kids running around church. And many times you look at them and you say, well, I wish he was mine. But then when they get older, when they really need you, when life challenges begin to come, you didn't think the long term through. Now other things get in the way. And we know what we do? We try to supplement that with things for them to do that are maybe not bad things. But we think that by getting them here or putting them in this program or this sports thing or this thing here, that relieves me of my responsibility. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Bible says he foreseeth the evil. I, I, I tell you all the time that everybody Christian, your head ought to be on a swivel. You want to look behind, you got to look around, you got to look ahead. Now through the principles of the Word of God in the Bible, uh, you, you don't have to go down that road uh, where problems come in because you should have the ability to foresee the evil before it gets here. That's what principles does. I mean, the Bible does many things for us, and one of the main things that it will uh, accomplish, it will, when it comes to uh, life, it, it'll, it'll make you and me proactive. Now, I want to say this. Most Christians, most parents, but most Christians are not proactive. Most Christians are reactive. They wait till sin hits them, and then they try to deal with it. And you go through your life with that kind of philosophy, you're going to be in trouble. God never intended for sin ever to get to your doorstep. You know why? He gave you the principles to make you proactive that you could foresee it coming. Through the characters and the stories of the Bible, it will show you every scenario of life and how you see the cause and the effect of not only the short term, but the long term. Let me illustrate it. Now, this is an example of how you use your Bible 101, okay? 
I know I say it a lot and say it all the time, and most of you probably, I don't get through because I don't explain it very well, but let me explain it to you. I mean, before you can be used of God effectively, you must be an effective user of the Word of God. It's just that simple. And that's what we do here. Show me you need to be discipled, discipleship one. Show me you're in discipleship two. Show me you need to get some things worked out. Let me put a plan together for you. It's what I do. It helps you get everything that you want to be everything God wants you to be. But let me illustrate this. In the Old Testament, now, if you read your Bible, you study your Bible, in time God opens up the Scriptures and shows you some things. Years ago, years ago, I was reading through my Bible and I was diligent about it and trying to get in the Word of God and learn the Word of God. And I came through the Old Testament. It was just like God correlated my thoughts and my views and everything I needed to show me this. And all of a sudden, I began through a couple of passages of Scripture. God began to put the, put, connect the dots. And I found out that there were seven men in the Old Testament that God singled out. I mean, you got all kinds of characters, but God chose seven guys that he wanted to single out and tell me about them. And I began to look at that, and I thought to myself as I studied it, when you take these seven men and study them individually, you know what it does? It shows you the seven roads of life that you're going to go down as a Christian. And you look at their lives, you study their lives, and you learn to do through the things that they went through. I mean, what good is a King James Bible if you don't know how to use it? And I looked at these seven guys, and I, I, I cataloged them, and I got them in my Bible. It's a whole series I could teach, uh, but, and I, but it was impacted me. I mean, when the Bible says to study to show thyself approved, what does that mean to you? Does it mean you get some tape, which there's nothing wrong with, or you get a book back there, and there's nothing wrong with? It says a workman. How much, how much, how much work time do you spend in the Bible every week? Now, this is a great example of Bible principles and you looking and getting them and cataloging them by seven men that God, three, four, five, six, seven, Put them over here and said, if you're smart enough and you see I've set them apart, study them. Because in life, these four, seven men go down the seven pathways of life that you're going to have to go down. And you know what they'll teach you to do when you study them? They'll teach you through the principles to foresee the evil that's coming your way. That's what it does. Well, let me read them for you first of all. Let's go over to Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14. We'll pick up our first three. Ezekiel 14, 14. Now here's what it says. Honorable mention. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should not deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Now there's your first three. See that thing? He, he gave special mention to Noah, Daniel, and Job. Then when you come over to Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1, he gives you two more. Honorable mention. Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, 
yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Ah, now we got five. Okay. Then we come over to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. We find the, the next honorable mention. But thou, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Wow. Then in Acts chapter 13, we find our seventh honorable mention. Verse 22, verse 23. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Seven men. Now these men are set aside and mentioned by God. And when you study them and look at the, each one of them, you can see how God gave them to us. Why? And the principles that they followed, or in many cases didn't follow, to give us the ability to foresee through what they went through what's coming your way. The evil that we'll have to face. This is how you use your Bible. You think God just pulled those seven guys out of the air because he didn't have nothing to do on that day? He did that by design. He knows. Proverbs says you and I are going to have to face some things in life. He gave us the Bible that through the principles of the Word of God, if you learn these men's lives, here's seven men who are going to go down the seven roads of life that you and I are going to go down. Each one of them had evil come to them, and you find out how they dealt with it or didn't deal with it. Uh, look at the first one. Just quickly here. Abraham. He's called the friend of God in Isaiah 41.8. You want to be God's friend? Study Abraham. From his life, you'll learn one of the great principles of your relationship with God once God saved you. Abraham teaches the greatest principle that he teaches. He's a picture of your life and my life, and God has something that he wants you and I to do. He has some places that he wants us to go. And he doesn't give it in a packet to show you with the directions. He expects you to walk by faith and not by sight. That's Abraham. And when you study Abraham's life, you learn one of the greatest first principles of the road of life in for a child of God. He'll teach you how to wander for God. Go wherever God wants you to go. Put your plans aside and wander for God wherever he wants you to go. That's Abraham. When he called him out of the Ur Chaldees, he says, I want you to go to a place and I'm not even going to tell you where it's at. And boy, he wandered, but he got there. And God saves you. He's got something for you. He's not going to give it all out to you. He wants you to walk by faith. He wants you to wander for him wherever he wants you to go. I being in the way, the Lord led. You want to learn how to wander for God? Study Abraham. You know why Abraham's called a friend of God? I know Moses is too, but you know why Abraham is called a friend of God? Because he had a, he had a friendship with him. And you know what? You can't have a friendship with anybody without trust. He had the trust with God. He trusted God because he wandered wherever God told him to go. He had his issues, but he got there. I'll tell you the second one. Jeremiah chapter 15, 1, Moses. One of the greatest examples in all the Bible 
on the evil we will face as a child of God. In his life, we see what comes, the evil, our way when we begin to minister to people and try to lead them. You know, I learned a lot from studying that road, that life down there that Moses went on. He's one of the most written about men in all of the Bible. He fills up over almost half of the Old Testament. And he's an incredible study. And from him, we know when I was putting my life together and dealing with people, this is where I learned the great principles that I've given to you, that you can't make somebody do right that they don't want to. If somebody has an attitude about something and that's where they're at, you're not going to change it. I mean, you can show them the scriptures and all of that, but I want to tell you something. You can never make, I have people call me at a time and say, I got an unsaved husband or I got an unsaved wife. Give me some verses that I can get them, make them to see what they need to do. You can't do that. If there were verses like that, I'd be a millionaire. I would do it out to people, uh, it would fix everybody's problem. You can't make somebody do what's right they don't want to. And I'll tell you something else, the greatest thing I ever learned is you can't want somebody to do right more than they do. And I learned that from Moses. Moses taught me there's a cost in doing the ministry. And when you go down the road that you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the ministry of the Lord, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to dedicate my life to it, I'm not even talking about full-time service. I'm talking about just getting into a church and, and helping me or helping a pastor or doing what you need to do. When you do that, the can of worms that you're going to open is going to be unprecedented. Everybody thinks, oh, wow, what a great thing, serving the Lord. Yeah, that'll last about 10 minutes. You will find that the evil that comes was the same evil that came in. The people he was trying to help didn't appreciate him. I don't know how many times they want to kill him. His own family didn't appreciate him. And there'll be times when you get into the ministry that the people that are closest to you, that ought to be the supporter of you, are going to be the hardest on you. There's a cost in doing it. The price you have to pay. And that evil will come your way. Moses is a great example of that. I studied him. I figured God set him apart for some reason. And then the third one, Jeremiah 15.1. We got Samuel. Samuel taught me how to do a work for God. He'll represent how to get into the ministry right and then to stay in it right. He'll teach us how to work for God and the evil that will come your way when you do that. And he was a great study for me. From the very beginning there, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, when his mom drops him off down there with Eli, all the way through, he becomes one of the greatest prophets that Israel ever had. And the last judge that they have. Then the fourth one, found in Ezekiel 14, 14, was Noah. Now these next three are what I call overcomers. They show you that once you get saved, you should overcome the world. When you find the word overcome in the Bible, it, it, will, it will always be a reference to you being saved and overcoming the world. And Noah, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, uh, he, he, he's an overcomer. In Genesis 6, he overcomes the world. You realize that other than his family, and I don't find too much about them listed, but Noah seemed to be the main guy in Genesis chapter 6. You know that Noah, 
He's the only man in the Bible that took on single-handedly the whole world for God. The whole world was in sin, every part of it. And we learned that the evil of our day, this through through his day, that is going to come your way. And when you decide, when you decide that you're going to uh, strike out for God, and from Noah, you know what we learn? We learn with Abraham how to wander. We learn from Samuel how to work. We will learn from Noah how to walk. You want to learn how to walk with God? Study Noah. He walked in a world where nobody. God told him to build a 500-foot boat in the backyard. I mean, the whole neighborhood went ballistic. I'm sure the homeowner society went crazy. Got an aircraft carrier in his backyard. And when they come up and they ask him, what in the world are you doing? He gives them the lame answer, it's going to rain. And yet the Bible tells us up to that point, it never had rain. Nobody knew what rain was. And then the real killer is he added God to it. God told me it was going to rain. Now he's ready for the Section 8 ward at the mental hospital. But he walked with God. He never lost faith in God. And you want to learn how to walk with God and overcome the world? Study Noah. Then we have Daniel. He's number 5. Ezekiel 14, 14. And he's an overcomer. And you know what he overcomes, don't you? He overcomes the flesh. But boy, he faces some evil to do it, doesn't he? You ever notice how in Daniel, one of the things that just sticks out when you study that in the light of what I'm giving you, how God showed him every step of the way what was coming his way. And there was never a time that he got blindsided with anything that he wasn't prepared for it. And when we study Daniel, he overcomes the flesh, but he teaches us, I mean, Samuel teaches how to work for God. Noah teaches how to walk with God. Uh, Daniel teaches how to stand for God. And you need to learn how to stand for God. You know why some of you young kids are in the world right now? And you're flirting with it? Some of you are not flirting, you married it. But you know why you're struggling what you struggle with in the world? I'll tell you why. You've never learned to take your stand for God. You never learn how to overcome the flesh. And when that evil hits you at school or with your friends or whatever that you allowed in, blindsided you. Never saw it coming. That's the way sin is. Now our sixth one. It'll be Ezekiel 14, 14. It'll be Job. He's an overcomer. And he teaches us about our sufferings for God, what we're going to go through. And you know what he overcame, don't you? He overcame the devil. He stands in stark reality to the fallacy today that most churches, pastors teach in books written about why bad things happen to good people. Sell a million copies. And I want to tell you something. If you're a child of God here, there isn't one thing bad that happened to you. You know why? Because God ordained it to put it into your life for a reason. It's when you start thinking it's bad, you miss the reason why God put it in. Then our last guy. Number seven, Acts 13, 22, David. And he'll teach us the importance of the Word of God when the evil comes. 
Where Samuel taught us to work for God, where Noah taught us to walk with God, where Daniel taught us to stand for God, and Job taught us to get through the sufferings, old David will tell us how to worship with God. Spirit and truth, John 4, 24. Now you see, when the Bible says a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, we see what happens. We see what happens when you wander for God, you have do the ministry for God, you do a work for God, you walk with God, you stand for God, you overcome the flesh for God, and you get into the Word of God. And when you study those seven men that God pulled out and put particularly for you, and you look at the seven paths of life that you're going to go through as a Christian, you know what you learn from them? You learn to see what's coming your way before it gets there. Now it says down through there, he and hideth himself. Where do you hide yourself? You hide behind the principles of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, when the devil came to the Lord Jesus to try to tempt him, he didn't argue with him. He didn't proclaim he was God. He didn't kick the devil and talk about all that he did in Genesis 1-1. He just simply said three times, it is written. He hid behind the principles. The devil had nowhere to go. And that's why the Bible says over there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, that you and I are to give no place to the devil. Give him no place to go. You know why? Because you're hiding behind the principle. He can't get you. You know why he can't get you? you? Do you know why he can't get you? Do you know why he can't get to you? He can't get through the principles. <clears throat> oh, no, most of God's people put a big bullseye on their rear end saying, devil, take your best shot. He'll nail you every time. You got to hide. You gotta hide. You know where you hide? You hide behind the principles. He'll never get to you through those principles. Now, in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna begin to talk about training up your children. And I'll be very honest with you, most parents don't have a clue to even begin how to do that. If there ever is a time that we need to be proactive, it is with our kids long before the evil. Uh, gets to them. I mean, getting these seven men in their life and showing them how to be prudent, how to hide from the evil, because believe me, brother, it's coming. I mean, come on, come on. I've watched parents, parents all my life in our church, and there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong at all. I've watched you take your kids to the batting cages so they'd be a better ball player. Nothing wrong with that at all. I could use a little help myself. You sign them up. They want to play football. They're going to play soccer. They're going to do this or that. You sign them up for a soccer camp or a football camp or a base camp so they can be better at what they do. You wouldn't miss. And you shouldn't. It's valuable time. You wouldn't miss the youth turkey shoot or the youth deer season or the fishing rodeos or, or all, the, all the neat things that you get to do. I mean, to make them better and make them aware of what's around them. Nothing wrong with it. And it's not free either. You'll spend hundreds of dollars on camps and uniforms and fees and bats and ball and shoes. I mean, you just can't have any kind of shoes if you're going to play ball. You would think if somebody would design a shoe that you could wear in all sports. That ain't true. You're going to have one pair of shoes for soccer, one pair of shoes for football, one pair of shoes for this, a pair of boots for hunting. I mean, it's just, it's, it's endless. You got to have shoes. You got to have hats. You got to have gloves. And yet, 
I've seen parents not win. They do all of that, that, whatever their kid is trying to do to make them better, and I have never seen them spend one hour, one dollar, dads with sons, dads with daughters, moms and dads with the family and the kids, trying to make them better as a Christian. And then we wonder why the world swallows them up. We wonder why you have issues with them. Why, if we took these seven people of life's illustrating by seven men and sat down and showed them how God uh, took them down these roads and to look out for this coming your way. I mean, let me ask you a question. Which would you rather have? You rather have your child be a better ball player or a better Christian? It's just that simple. Most parents, like most kids, they wait to get blindsided before they begin to respond. They're not proactive. They're reactive. They should have foreseen and trained their child to foresee when you go to school and you hit that evil day, what's coming your way? Years ago when I was flying around preaching, I had a buddy of mine. He's a missionary now. His name was Bob, Bob uh, Matthews. Bob Matthews was a great guy. And he was a pilot. I don't like flying in small planes. I've seen too many guys killed in them. I got to say, Bob was the only pilot that I ever felt safe with. Uh, we, we, uh, I watched one time, and we were flying back from Illinois, a little church we had going up there. And we were flying back, a little single-engine plane, and we flew out late that night. When we flew up that day before... And it was about a, oh, I don't know, two-hour flight. We had a 90-mile-an-hour tailwind. We got there in no time. And I was thinking, that's great, but I forgot to calculate that flying back, we were going to hit it head-on. We flew out of Illinois up there, uh, out of Quad Cities. Uh, we flew out of that thing, and we started out about 10 o'clock that night. And by 1 o'clock in the morning, we hadn't went, we hadn't went very far at all. And we were pushing about a 90-mile headwind, and it was slowing us. To not, we were, I could have got out and walked faster. <laughs> Bob was a great pilot, and if Bob got nervous, I got nervous. And Bob said, you know what? Why don't you get that map out there and you look for an airport, because we're going to have to set this puppy down here if we don't find something pretty quick. Now, that, that got my attention. Bob... He, he was the most cautious pilot I ever met in my life. But if Bob said, we're going to crash, you're going to crash. <laughs> and when Bob said a 90-mile-an-hour headwind is holding you up and we're going to run out of gas, we better find a place to land. And I said, I, Bob, I don't, I don't see. Oh, this really scared me. I said, Bob, I, there's no airports on here. He says, then look for a wide road. <laughs> now, that really bothered me. And lo and behold, just as we were about an hour out of gas. We broke out of that tailwind. You could feel that plane surge for us. And we got into Kansas City, downtown airport, Wheeler down there. And I'll tell you what, I mean, it's a wonder we didn't run a gas taxi into the runway. Bob was a great pilot. <laughs> he always wanted to try to get me to learn how to fly. And we would fly places. He'd let me take the plane, fly it. I mean, he'd sit next to me, obviously. But, uh, but he'd let me fly it. And I, I, I if I ever tried to fly an airplane, get my pilot, I'd be dead in a week. 
I'm not that precise. You know, if you're going to fly a plane, you've got to dot your, te- dot your I's across your T's. I, I just, you know, I just, I wanted to, you know, you can't do that, you know. I want to go around water towers. You can't do that. I'm up there, you know, and I'm saying, he says, keep it level, keep it level. And I'm saying, your nose is up, your nose is down. I never find level. He was a great pilot. You know what he told me? Never forgot this. He says, really, flying is not hard. He said, the toughest part in an airplane, flying, is landing. I mean, you're coming in on a runway, and, uh, you know, and, and you're coming in, what, 90 mile an hour, maybe 100 mile an hour, coming into a runway, and you're going to have to set that baby down. And he says, he says, the rule for landing a plane, always stay ahead of the plane. Know what you got to do before you got to do it when you're landing the plane. He says, Bob, if you don't do that, you're going to crash. He says, when I land the plane, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to think about anything. I'm thinking one thing. I'm staying ahead of what I got to do to land that plane. And I thought about that years later with all the families and kids. I want to tell you something. When it comes to your kids, it's like flying a plane and trying to land it. You got to stay ahead of your children. Or you'll crash. Uh, it, it, it's just that simple. I, 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 mean, I mean, look at the last part of that verse. But the simple pass on and are punished. Now that's real simple. When you don't foresee what's coming ahead, when you don't look behind, look around, or look ahead, when, when, when you, don't, you don't get proactive in your life or your lives of your family, and we'll get into all of this when we get into... Verse 6 here. We're going to take some time. We're going to camp it. I'm going to help all you young uh, parents get what you need to get. I'll help anybody anytime, no matter where you're at. But I want to tell you something. It starts with being proactive and seeing the evil coming your way and then having them see it. It starts with hiding behind the biblical principles that will protect you. Nothing will get through. Nothing will get through. You hide behind the biblical principles and have a principle for what you're going to do. Every decision you're going to make, every circumstance you're going to put yourself in. You get those principles involved in that, the devil will never get to you. Evil will never, you'll see it coming long before. And when you see it coming, you'll just step over behind the principles and by it'll go. For see the evil coming your way. Hide behind those principles. Then we will simply, if we don't do that, then we'll simply, as the verse says, pass on and be punished. And I look at that and I think to myself, how many Christians, when it came to the things of the Word of God, they passed on prudence, they passed on discretion. Nah, never mind, I'll pass on discernment. I'll pass on it. Pastor Bob, I'll pass on the Bible. I'll pass on coming in and talk to you. I'll pass on listening to the sermons. I'll pass on cataloging the principles. I'll pass on the teaching. I'll pass on Bible study. Oh, 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 all of that stuff I'm just going to pass on. And the Bible says the end result is they're punished. It's not pretty. Because then in their lives they have a catalog of broken relationships, broken marriages, unfulfilled life, years of compounding sin and destroying everything in their life, lose their marriage, lose their kids, lose their job, lose everything. And most important of all, lose a relationship with God, your relationship with the Bible. And the punishment, the punishment comes in the form of judgment. Either the world clobbering you, 
for the judgment seat of Christ to get in clobbered. All because we looked at the Bible, we looked at the principles, we looked and saw what it said, like I said today, and then you know what? We walk out of here and we just simply say, pass on. Pass on. You know, Solomon, without a doubt, was the wisest man that, that ever lived. And when it came to the end of his life, and he's probably the most unique man in the Bible because God allowed him to see and experience and partake in everything in life. God held nothing back from him. I don't fully understand all of that, but I know it to be true. And after he saw everything in life, experienced everything in life, went through everything that God allowed him to do, touch, taste, and handle, at the end of his life in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, when he had written the greatest book on all theologies of man under the sun and all that he likes to do, he simply said this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And at the end of it all, at the end of everything in your life and my life, when we come down, the rich and the poor, they'll meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And a prudent man foreseeth the evil, and he hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. You know, that's exactly the two choices we have as Christians. We can either get the Word of God and use it the way that it's supposed to be, or we can get the Word of God and do nothing with it. And then all of our lives, we run behind the plane. All of our lives, we don't become proactive, we become reactive. All of our lives, we're getting blindsided by everything that hits us. And most of the time, by the time it hits us, it can be very hard, if not impossible, to fix. But I'm telling you, what good is to have a Bible if you're not going to use it? What good is to have it if you're not going to take what it says and really do something with it? It's the difference between a Christian who just goes through life with a problematic lifestyle that has issues in everything versus somebody who lives above the circumstances, who hides behind the principles, and the Word of God does the work in our lives simply because you and I did the work in the book first. We'll hold up there. You guys have a good Thanksgiving. I'll close in prayer here. I'll call you back up in about five minutes for our meeting for 